Well, John chapter 4 has this amazing story in it where the Samaritan woman's at the well and Jesus comes to the well. And pretty much what the response from the woman is, is, who are you? Who are you? Who are you to ask me? Jews and Samaritans do not get along. And so for some of us, we wonder a little about, well, what's, why? What's the backstory to this? But I'd just like to start off with this one brief question that she asks. Who are you? The gumption that she has to ask, who are you? So this morning, I'm going to try to do something a little bit different <clears throat> than I normally do. I'm not going to call my wife a Sasquatch or anything like that. Uh, she's coming at 10.30. She's not happy with me at all. That's what I called her last week. Anyway, um, I don't have any real clever stories about my kids um, or anything like that, but I do want to dive into this Scripture text in uh, more of an interesting way. We're going to do something a little bit different. I want to teach you a little bit about how I read Scripture and how I would encourage you to read Scripture and one of the, some of the things that we miss when we don't read Scripture in this way. So when we read Scripture, what we need to do is keep in the front of our minds a couple of things. The first is, why is this writer writing what they did? Why is this writer writing what they're writing? Why are they? And you can't just say that God told them to, right? And that's part of the deal. But there are other reasons, and they're very important, especially when you read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospel of John is very unique. They all tell the story of Jesus, but John puts in a lot of other stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have in them. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels. They're the ones that they kind of all have most of the same stories in and in almost the same chronological order. But John is a very different book. And the reason why is because John is trying to tell the people that he's reading or listening to his words something very specific. John's gospel was composed in a context in his world, in real time and in real space, with real people, with real experiences. He, he was writing his gospel when the identity of Jesus was being disputed. It was the latest gospel to be written, and the further away you get from an event, it's just like the, the, uh, the, the game telephone, the further away you get from the source, people start to come up with other answers to the questions. There are more Gentiles that are coming into this new movement. There are even Samaritans that are coming into this movement. And the central issue that John deals with is the claim that Jesus is God. That's what John is concerned with. John wants to reveal to his, his readers and his hearers that Jesus is truly God. That's the main focus. So as you read the Gospel of John, you need to have that in the forefront of your mind because that's what John is trying to do. The second piece that you need to keep in the forefront of your mind is context. We need to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Let's, let's imagine this scenario. Imagine you have been asked 
to tell a group of people the history of the United States of America. And there are two different groups. There's a group we call Group A, and that group has never heard anything about the United States of America. They walked out of the bushes of Brazil. They don't even know anything about the world. And you're supposed to tell them about the history of the United States of America. Think about how long that conversation would be. You wouldn't be able to skip very much. They know nothing. Now, there's another group that you've been asked to explain the history of the United States of America with, and that's Group B. And they know the history just as well as you do. They've gone to the same classes. They're aware of all of the same issues. You wouldn't need to go into the detail of a lot of things. So you came to the point where we talked about the Civil War. In many ways, when you just say the word Civil War, and I just talked about even these words of Civil War, you automatically are starting to think of Abraham Lincoln, slavery, states' rights, major cultural differences and agricultural differences between the North and the South, the pain and anguish of families that were split apart because one brother went to fight for the North and one brother went to fight for the South. And you would know deep in your bones the deep pain and the ramifications of the Civil War and the reverberations that are still continuing to this day. Or maybe I could just say the word Mayflower, and all of a sudden, everyone in this room already is thinking about pilgrims and Thanksgiving. Hammer turkey. Brian and smoke. Yes, the turkey. When I would say these things, you would say these things to the group that knew the history just as well as you did, all of those images would pop up in their minds. Here's the reality. When it comes to reading Scripture, especially the words that come to us from 2,000 years ago in an Eastern culture, a very different tribal culture that we live in the Western world, you and I are in group A. We need to understand how much work we need to do to understand the context and what John is trying to do. But for centuries and centuries, especially in the Western world, we think we've got it right all the time. Context matters. We have to be able to recognize that we are immigrants to this story and we have to learn the language. We have to get to a place to where if someone says, Samaritan woman, you automatically know what's going on. Just like if I were to say civil war. But we don't always know what's going on when those words are spoken. So let's jump in. We're going to dive into this a little bit deeper than we normally would. Jesus is going to move into an area called Samaritan, or Samaria. And one of the ways that we've understood this story, I'm going to kind of give you the the clip version of it, is that we we read John chapter 4, this whole story, as if Jesus is the morality police. Jesus is the morality police. He meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and during the conversation, he calls her out for having five husbands. Jesus becomes the morality police, This woman is at the well at the heat of the day. It's not time you want to go get water. 
So she goes at the heat of the day all by herself. It makes it seem like she doesn't have any friends. And she's been ostracized from the community because she has this immoral past of having five husbands. Now, it's important for you and I to know that we read this text, and we've read this text, through the lens of Western Puritanism that also came through on the Mayflower. Our religion is consumed with morality and finding answers to those questions. There are Christians that live all over the world, especially in the eastern part of the world, that aren't necessarily worried about the answers. What they're worried about is that they, what they're interested in is the story. And how does the story speak truth to their lives? How does the story speak truth to their lives? Just like I was talking about the Ten Commandments. We've turned the Ten Commandments into something you slap on the wall and you have to do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, right? The Ten Commandments are actually a means of grace. They're given to us so that we can live better with one another. Not because we have to, but because of call to live into that story. So now, this is an interpretation that people have had for many, many, many years. And I'm not going to tell you to not interpret it that way. There's a lot of really smart people who spend a lot of time. But I do want to take some time with us this morning to what a lot of uh, rabbis and Jewish scholars call turning the gem. We're going to turn the gem and see the story in a different way. And you're going to be able to come to the point to where you start asking the question of Jesus, who are you as well? So a couple of things to keep in the forefront. The first, John is not written to be the morality police of the Bible. That's not what Jesus is is in John. John was written to tell us that Jesus is God. To reveal over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. He is revealing. The second piece, context, comprised of history, cultural issues, specific and particular to a certain time and place, and the people who were in that specific particular time and place. So let's understand who these Samaritans are. Long time ago, there was a king. His name was King Solomon. And after King Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel split into two countries, the northern country and the southern country. The northern country was called Israel, and the southern country was called Judah. The northern country had a capital. Anybody see that? It's got the star. Anybody read it? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, Jewish capital of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom's capital is Jerusalem. Now, you have to know when the split happened, there also was a religious split. The Jews of the south had their religious headquarters and the temple in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, they had a whole other temple we never even talk about. And their temple was headquartered in Samaria. And then all of a sudden, after several years went by, another group of people came along, and it's called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a massive, powerful empire. We may know the Assyrians as the place that God sent Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Jonah didn't want to go. Why? Because the Assyrians had been killing his people for generations. Generations. 
We're going to get into Jonah for Lent. This is what happened when the Assyrians came in. King Shalmaneser of Assyria came up against him. Hosea was the king of the northern kingdom. Became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. Hosea, For he had sent messengers to King of So of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria confined him and imprisoned him. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And he besieged it. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Hala on the harbor of the river of Gazan and the cities of the Meds. This is in Second Kings. Now, how do you uh, lay siege to a city? You cut off all water, you cut off all food, and the people die of starvation. Nine years, nine years, this king from Assyria uh, laid siege to the northern kingdom. Do you know how many people died? you know how horrible it was? It was terrible. And then what happened is that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Qatar, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavam, and placed them into the cities of Samaria in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and settled in its cities. So the king of Assyria laid siege to the northern kingdom of Israel, killed a bunch of people, and the people that finally gave up and and surrendered, he took all of them back to his country to be slaves, and he repopulated that northern kingdom, that area of Samaria, with a bunch of other people from different countries. Actually, five different countries. And I think that number five is very important. And they were loyal to the Assyrians. And over the years that went by, it was inevitable that theological opposition between the Samaritans and the Jews would develop. And over the years and over the generations, other Jews that had been taken out of into exile were sent back to their old homes and their old cities. Can you imagine going back to your old home, your old ancestral home, and there's other people living in your house? There's other people living in your town? Not only that, but they've taken all your religious uh, temples and all the synagogues, and they've given them over to idols. Can you imagine what that is for a group of people? Not only that, but when the, the Samaritans now are, are called a collective Samaritans, they're not called just these people from these five countries. Over hundreds of years, they now are these Samaritans, and they resist the Jewish people. The Samaritans actually help the Assyrian Empire defeat the Jews. And in around 128 B.C., just over about 128 years before Jesus was born, the Jewish high priests retaliated and they burned the Samaritan temple to the ground. There is deep generational animosity between Jews 
and Samaritans. It runs deep. It's not just enough for me to go, oh, they don't get along. The context matters. And so by the time Jesus comes along, there's a, a, a country, a, a part of the territory that the Romans are now in charge of this whole area, but they've given this, this province a name, Samaria. And guess who lives in Samaria? King Herod and his sons. And King Herod is, and his sons are bad, bad kings. They kill their own family. They kill all kinds of people. And they tax the people so much that there becomes now a permanent uh, underclass of poverty directly against what God calls out for God's people. Jesus somehow decides he's going to go to Samaria crazy. Jesus is a Jewish man and a rabbi. He should know better. And he has to get from Jerusalem, Judea, back to Galilee where he came from. So he has to figure out a way to get through Samaria. And the way to get through Samaria is not straight through the middle of it. The way to get through Samaria is what the, the path would be was right along the Jordan River that goes from the Dead Sea up to the Lake of Galilee. And you'd skirt that whole area. But in the story, Jesus ends up at a well right outside Sychar, Samaria, right in the middle. Jesus does this on purpose. He's at a well. Well, Let's go back a little bit. Do you remember how many groups of people were shipped to settle in Samaria? Five. Five groups of people. Where do we hear that number before? Samaritan woman has five husbands. Whenever Scripture uses a date or a time or a number, pay attention to it. It's trying to tell you something. And it's something that you and I, as immigrants to this story, never ever pick up. We never pick this up. This is what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to him, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now it's very interesting. Jesus comes to the well has, is starting, has this amazing theological conversation with this woman, talking about, I am the living water. If you would have drunk the living water, you would never be thirsty again. They're having this amazing theological, high-level conversation. And then Jesus comes along and says, uh, well, let's talk about your personal life. Let's talk, let's talk about your personal life. Now, as a pastor... Um, I find it, a lot of people, especially on airplanes or things like that, you know, if I'm a pastor, they, they don't want to talk to me. But sometimes we, we do have some kind of conversations like overall larger theological conversations, but in no chance, there's no way they want me to get in their personal life. 
Actually, one of my uh, favorite quotes is from uh, my doctor. He's a, he's a doctor of mine for years and years and years, my general practitioner. And every time I went to go see him, he'd say, Now, Pastor, remember, stay, out, stay, stay away from people's money and stay away from their business. So it's interesting to me that Jesus is having this large, big theological conversation and then gets personal. Or does he? Now remember, what's going on here? John is a gospel that is concerned mostly about revealing who Jesus is. And Jesus uses this husband and wife conversation. Now the amazing thing is that this is nothing new. In the gospel of John, in chapter 3, John the Baptist, who has been claiming, or his disciples have been claiming that John the Baptist is the Messiah. And John the Baptist says these words. You yourselves are my witnesses, that I have said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which is John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, John the Baptist says, but I must decrease. John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom, or we call it the groom. And that's not the only place in the Gospels where um, Jesus uh, claims to be the groom. So is Jesus really getting into this woman's personal life and saying, you've had, you've had five husbands? Or is John trying to do something else? As we turn the gym, John is trying to reveal who Jesus is to the Samaritan people. A people who have had five different gods move into their reality. When these people brought, when these people came from all these other countries, they brought their gods with them. So this woman would have been the bride, Samaria would have been the bride five times to other grooms, other gods. And Jesus is sitting at the well and telling this woman, if you only knew, I'm the real groom. I'm the real bridegroom. Only if you knew to drink from this water. This is what he says. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Jesus reveals himself as the real bridegroom to even the most hated people that the Jewish people have. The Samaritans. He says to the Samaritans, you may thirst for other gods, but that thirst will fade away once you have tasted the living water that is me. That's where the word draws us in. 
It's not about Jesus being the morality police. It's about Jesus being revealed as the one who gives living water to a group of people that have been seeking all kinds of other gods. And the same thing is true for you and I. There are a lot of other gods that want to pull at our time. There are a lot of other grooms out there trying to make us the bride. Money, pride, greed, hate, selfishness. I just pulled up five, just so we got five, five, five. But Jesus, too, meets us by the wells of our lives. And Jesus asks us to ask the question, too. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? A lot of us have grown up with Jesus being the morality police. Don't do this. Don't do that. You've done this. You've done this bad. Repent. Get better. Stop doing this. I mean, we've grown up with this Jesus. Like this, you know, I, I say this all the time. Like Jesus, we, we turn Santa Claus into Jesus. Like, you better watch out. Better not cry. Because you know, I'm watching you. And if you don't do the right thing, you're going to lump a coal in your stocking. Is that what we've turned Jesus into? If we lean into the other interpretation of this scripture, yes, then it is. Jesus is the morality police. But Jesus is much, much more than just watching us to make sure we don't mess it up. Jesus comes to us and says, I am the living water. And once you've tasted me, you will thirst no more. You will be drawn in to new life. The Gospel of John talks, it says it as eternal life. Not a life after death, but a life that is full now, that reaches out for joy and beauty and hope and promise. It makes us be better, not because we have to or because Jesus is the morality please, but because we get to respond to that love. Do you ever really respond to love? Probably the, 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 the best thing that uh, I could talk about love and my wife and my kids, but probably the most best response I've ever had sometimes when my daughter, she still wants to come give me a hug every once in a while, every once in a while. And she comes and gives me a hug, and I respond to that love. Not because I have to, not because I'm supposed to because I'm the dad, not because it's a role I'm playing, but it's because that's what we get to do. And that's what Jesus is all about for you and for me. And it starts with that little simple question. Who are you really, Jesus? And I hope that you will find that Jesus, the Jesus who gave his life for us and gave us this meal and bread and wine so that we always know that we're forgiven, that you will find Jesus to be way more than the morality police. But a Jesus who comes and gives us life. Amen.